What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Chad and John, the Two Man Power Trip. That's uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. The two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. On Saturday, February 6th, live in Annandale, the franchise Shane Douglas and former WWE superstar Kevin Thorne will be signing from 12 p.m. to 1.30 p.m. You can check out all the information about that amazing event on collectorsworldva.com. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz. And John, today on the show, we have an absolutely fun episode. And fun being the primary word to use there because we are joined by the director of fun for Chikara, the one and only Mike Quackenbush. And I know your history with Mike Quackenbush is pretty extensive, and we're going to get into that in a minute. But as I welcome you in, John, let's talk about Chikara and the fact that it's hard to believe, and it's funny when you, you actually say it, but Chikara has been around for 14 years, and I say it to Mike in the interview, you think about the fact that WCW and ECW have been gone longer than Chikara has been around, but that's still 14 years, and it's kind of crazy to wrap your head around it, but talk about the success of Chikara and the fact that 14 years later, just as strong as they've ever been. Now, Mike is such an amazing guy, such an amazing talker. And Chikara falls right in line with him. They call him the director of fun. He's all about fun. He's all about passion. He's all about having a good time. And when you go to a Chikara show or you watch Chikara, you eye pay-per-view, whatever you got to do to watch it, it's just all about fun and entertainment. And whether you're an adult, whether you're a kid, you're going to have fun at the show. And the characters are all totally different than anything you've seen before they're amazing there's obviously a lot of lucha libre in there there's some japanese stuff in there there's just some total technical wrestling in there it's like everything all mixed into one but it you know like i said a million times we talked about with mike you mentioned it it's all about fun and entertainment and that's what chikara brings and i absolutely love the league because 
nowadays everything is so cynical and the fans are always ripping on stuff and, and like, oh, that stinks or that stinks. When you go to a Chikara show or when you watch a Chikara show, it's just like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is fun. This is entertaining. You kind of don't have the same mindset. I don't know what, what it is, but uh, he's touched on something there. He's, he's definitely touched on a, on a good note and on like a positive nerve, you know, if you will. But he's, he's touched on something, and it's totally fun, and it's totally entertaining, and it's just in keeping with him in general. But when you go to Chikara, you know you're going to have a good time. Yeah, totally. And it's funny, you know, I could be at the top of that list of people who are very cynical when it comes to things being done in professional wrestling. Comedy, of course, being one of those because it's usually done so poorly and it's executed so poorly. But Chikara makes a huge difference in the fact that they're already coming at you with a light demeanor and they're not trying to get serious in one realm and then go down the comedy route in another like the, uh, the big time promotions do. But I think that goes back to how they bring the promotion together and how they not only use the outside talent that we do know, you know, some of the top indie talent, but they kind of foster talent from the inside and grow them to be on these shows and grow them into professional wrestling superstars. And of course, I'm talking about what they do at the Wrestle Factory in Pennsylvania. And John, we've mentioned it a couple times on the show, and I know it's something that you don't mind talking about. So I just want to ask you again, the fact that you actually were able to learn under Mike Quackenbush at the Wrestle Factory, and now being able to have this extensive interview like we did with him, and kind of, you know, put yourself back into the ring and listening to him explain professional wrestling to a group of trainees, bring it all together if you can and talk about how it is dealing with him in both both realms and you know does is there really a difference between wrestling trainer Mike Quackenbush and wrestling pitchman Mike Quackenbush you know there's really not a real difference when I first met him and you know you're talking to him he's so smooth he's so comfortable he's so likable and he's so friendly and I feel like he's the same exact way over the phone and then especially when I was able to give him some of my background as far as being a fan and go into hey I you know I'm from New Jersey, used to see you on all the Jersey independents. Uh, you know, we've interviewed Tom Carter, we've interviewed Ace Darling, Devin Storm, you know, who all had great things about, you know, to say about you from the independent scene and, you know, the travel on the road with you. And then obviously we got to talk to Reckless Youth about Chikara starting up with Mike Quackenbush. So it's kind of weird how he plugs in a lot of the holes of the show and, and a lot of the holes with us as far as being fans and living in New Jersey and that huge hotbed that used to be the New Jersey independent scene. But then you throw all that in, you couple that in with the fact that I got to go down to the wrestle factory, which is just amazing that they, they're able to offer this. They give you a free seminar. You go down there and you train with one of the best in Mike and he's so relaxed. He's so cool. He's so comfortable. And he explains stuff to you that when you're in the ring that you don't even think about I've been watching wrestling for 30 years, and some of the stuff he said to me, you know, circle this way, do this, do that. I'm thinking to myself, you know, I just never even thought about that before, but he is such an easy, smooth way of teaching it to you, and he teaches you stuff because he knows everything that you thought you knew or you, you, know, you think you have a grasp on the wrestling business, but you really don't until you learn from a master like Mike. So it was so cool being able to train with him and some of the things that you know he teaches you there. So I highly, highly recommend the Russell Factory down there in Philly and him as a trainer and a coach and a mentor and a teacher and everything else that he does down there. He's so cool about it and he makes you feel so comfortable because when I originally went down there, I'm thinking, I was like, I wonder if he's one of those hard asses 
where he's just going to, you know, he's going to bury you for the day. And by the time you leave, you're going to be puking your guts out or whatever. And wasn't like that at all. He, he takes your t- his time with you, you know, teaching the lockup, take, take bumps, everything that you kind of need to do, run the ropes. But he teaches it to you in such a manner where you learn it a lot easier and you, you just become so comfortable with him. So he's just great. And then, and then the flip side, when we got to talk to him for the interview, he got that same feeling. He's so comfortable, so easy to talk to. And it's so fun to almost go back down memory lane to when, you know, obviously, 20 years ago or so, when we, me and you were uh, a lot younger lads, if you will. Now we're kind of getting long in the tooth. But reliving those New Jersey independent days with him was a whole hell of a lot of fun, too. Oh, yeah. He fills in the puzzle pieces quite nicely. And that's what I think we love to do as we grow the show into new heights is that we like to fill in some of the gaps. And we've talked to some of his contemporaries and some of the guys that he came up through the uh, through the systems with, as well as, you know, when a guy like Reckless Youth, you know, put together Chikara. And it's just kind of cool to fill in the, you know, the gaps. And I am very forthright in saying that it's uh, it's quite the accomplishment of the show that we're able to hit on all these different guys' backgrounds. But... You know, you talk about the Wrestle Factory and you talk about training and, you know, getting in the ring and, you know, maybe he kind of taught you how to carry uh, some of these interviews like you do sometimes with the questions that you come up with. But, you know, that you come to mind with another guy that he trained with and we get into him extensively in the interview. And if you're a fan of the WWE and you're a fan of Ring of Honor, you know him very well. And that is Antonio Cesaro and Antonio Cesaro or Claudio Castagnoli came through the doors of Mike Quackenbush's world and out into the professional wrestling realm after that. And I think it's safe to say that uh, if you're learning from Mike Quackenbush, I can only imagine what it was like to get a young Cesaro in there and watch him grow to the heights that he's gained since uh, getting on the worldwide stage there with the WWE. Yeah, it's pretty cool when you talk to Mike and you're like, oh, who's trained here? You know, like, Oh, Jigsaw, I know him very well. Eddie Kingston, I know him very well. So many different guys, you just say, you know, I know him very well. And then you go like, who's your most famous student? Who, who's like the top dog? And then he's like, Claudio, you know, Cesaro trained here. And then, you know, your eyes kind of like pop out of your head. And you're like, oh, my God, this guy trained Cesaro. But Mike was kind of pretty humble about it and saying that, you know, he kind of only had a little bit of hand in him. But, you know, you talk to Cesaro, and I'm sure he would have a different story. And he I'm sure he would give Mike a, a ton of credit. So anytime you can latch your name as far as a training facility onto a wrestler of the caliber of Cesaro and then couple that with the fact that the guy is a huge star in the WWE is always a good thing for sure. And I just love that uh, when you know you get to go there and, and train and stuff, it's like, man, Cesaro trained here. And being such a big fan of him, it's cool to be able to, like you said, connect the dots a little bit as far as Cesaro to Mike Quackenbush and then, you, you know, connected that again to Tom Carter as far as creating Chikara. So that's really, really cool. And then another thing on top of that, as far as you know, the Wrestle Factory, as far as Mike, as far as Chikara is, is the King of Trios tournament. Just absolutely love that every year. It's such an annual event. It's something that people keep their eyes on and they're really interested in because we talk about it in the interview. You got Sean Waltman showing up as the 123Kid, Justin Credible's Aldo Montoya. It's awesome you get to see a lot of these big-name stars come back, but almost in a fun way, you know, where they're doing a fun gimmicks. 
Yeah, it's it's absolutely mind blowing sometimes, and you know we reference it in the interview. And of course, if you are a loyal subscriber to the show, which we know you are, you heard Ken Doan talk about his experience in the King of Trios tournament, reuniting with the Spirit Squad, and it's just really cool, especially if you buy the DVDs or you have the chance to go to the show. You see how the fans get into the quote the gimmicks. You know, even Tatanka showed up in a King of Trios. They had the WWF New Generation team, and it's just such a cool concept. And that's what it's all about with Chikara. It's all about fun, and it's all about having a good time. And one other thing, just to touch on it very briefly in regards to training, he talks about how on the WWE Network show Breaking Ground, you get to see basically the Chikara curriculum come out and how he kind of trained you know, people at the Wrestle Factory with Sarah Del Rey who is the head Divas trainer at the WWE Performance Center. So yet another cool connection as to how Chikara and the Wrestle Factory and Mike Quackenbush are really molding that next crop of superstars and really creating a really cool way for people to enjoy professional wrestling. But without that being said, we just want to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. And as I said at the beginning of the show on Saturday, February 6th, WWE superstar Kevin Thorne and ECW heavyweight champion and an ECW original, the franchise, Shane Douglas, are going to be signing autographs, taking pictures, and having a great old time at Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. It's about 30 minutes from Washington, D.C., so if you can get down there, go to collectorsworldva.com for all the information about that fantastic event. Of course, keep up with our Twitter. Keep up with Kevin Thorne's Twitter. We're going to be plugging it up the wazoo over the next week because it's going to be an awesome two-man power trip of wrestling event. John and I will be in attendance, so we hope people will come out and say hello. But John, with that being said, do what you do. Hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business. Don't forget to leave out that we are part of the TopRowPress.com radio network, and we have a very cool show coming very soon to the TopRowPress.com radio network. But do what you do. Hit a little two-man power trip of wrestling business and throw it over to Mike Quackenbush. Oh, yeah. TMPT Business. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter, like Chad mentioned, at Wrestling Pal or at Two Man Power Trip. Also, you just mentioned the Top Rope Press Radio Network, and we're a part of the TopRopePress.com family. And we got new and quite adventurous stuff coming your way as far as that's concerned, so check us out on there. Don't forget about the website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And most importantly, please subscribe to us on YouTube where we're putting up the latest and greatest clips. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Also, check out the feed while you're on there with past great episodes with the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Stan Hansen, a legend, Austin Idol, Jeff Jarrett, Jerry Jarrett, and so, so, so many more. That's just the tip of the iceberg. We're almost at episode 150, so please check out all the prior episodes. We love to do that. And also, while you're you know, on the internet, while you're checking things out, check out ChikaraPro.com for everything latest as far as Chikara is concerned. And don't forget, this Saturday there is a doubleheader that is January 30th at the Wrestle Factory in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Also next Saturday, February 6th, in Reading, PA, for National Wrestling Day, which is free to attend. And now, without any further ado, we send it off to the Chikara's Director of Fun. He is a former NWA World Junior Champion. He's a wrestler. 
a promoter, a trainer, an author, a podcaster, a teacher, a mentor, a great coach, and an all-around absolute legend in the wrestling business. He is lightning. He is the master of a thousand holds. He is an innovator of offense. He is Mike Quackenbush. Please enjoy. That's another uh, great indication of what the two-man power trip of wrestling is all about. Gotcha. So, well, we'll get right into it, and uh, you know, as we continue along, we'll we'll hit all the talking points. But joining us on the line today is Chikara's director of fun. He's a legendary name when you think about it in regards of coming in as a wrestler, uh, really becoming one of the guys that people went on to emulate in great fashion because he not only does he train them, but he also helps mold the way we look at professional wrestling today. And that is the one and only Mike Quackenbush. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. That might be the most flattering introduction I've ever been given. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that I cut that MP3 out and embed that on my new website. <laughs> with, without a without a doubt, it's easy to to come up with all these different things to say when you really look at the resume and you just you get floored by the things you've done in your career. And one of the things that just really takes me back, and John and I were just talking about it before you came on the line, is that is it's almost hard to believe that Chikara has been around for 14 years. And when you think about professional wrestling and we think about the le legendary you know, companies like WWE and we still talk about WCW, they've been gone longer than Chikara has been around. But 14 years later, how, what do you think about looking back on that? Can you believe the time has gone as fast as it has? It's like a blur. I think I, I can relate to this now as, as a father. It's kind of like one day you turn around, I think, and you look at your kids and you're like, when did they grow up? And I feel a little bit of that with Chikara. Uh, in the early years, you don't have time to sit down and be reflective of it and realize, well, these three years have gone quick. These six years have gone quick. No, you're just trying to stay alive. You're trying to keep your head above water. How are we paying the electric bill this month? But every once and again, you do have cause, and maybe today is cause for exactly that, to kind of sit back and look over the shoulder and be like, Man, the years have really gone here. Uh, and I think maybe that's fresh on my mind right now, sensing uh, our, our training system is called the Wrestle Factory. That's the name of our facility. Uh, that's where we train the upcoming wrestlers. And knowing how many Wrestle Factory graduates are about to, in this calendar year, before 2016 is over, how many of them are going to ascend onto the roster, there's going to be this inevitable changing of the guard. And th that's you know, one of those kind of touchstones. I think it really started in, in recent years. I myself have retired from active competition last year. One of the longest standing Chikara guys, Ultramantis Black, had a career-ending injury, uh, just a crazy, dumb accident in the ring. Some of these guys that have been with me since day one are really in that position where, you know, some of them are getting past that age where the WWE wouldn't even look at them. If that was their aspiration, they're even past the cutoff for being hired in terms of their age. And th that inevitability of life's going to creep up on him, like, man, eh, maybe I need to get out. Maybe I need to move on. Maybe, unfortunately, like a career-ending injury happens. They, they get married. They have kids. They get more involved in, in a, a different kind of career, whatever it might be. But I sense this changing of the guard coming this year, and that really has made me look back on it and just go, man, what a crazy trip it's been thus far. 
Yeah, and that's unbelievable because, you know, 14 years being in, in existence for a wrestling promotion in itself is an absolutely amazing accomplishment. But when you think about Chikara, and especially from a fan's perspective, you think about one of the key factors, and that is fun. So you take the, the elements of fun and the elements of building these great wrestlers and coming up with some of these amazing characters that translate not only to the global stage when they get that opportunity, but bringing in a loyal fan base and keeping that loyal fan base and seeing how even though the tape trading days are over with and we're such a global you know, network of getting a video here, getting a video there, are you amazed with the reach that you've been able to build with not only the superstars, but the fan outreach as well? Yeah, it never ceases to amaze me. Um, for example, like just knowing the, uh, two of our fans, they named their daughter Chikara. Like I, every time I hear a, a weird story like that, some fan comes up to me and shows me like, you know, they, they've got a sleeve on their arm of all the Chikara characters they've had tattooed on them. Or uh, just sometimes we ship, you know, a, send a random order out, packaged up a box, send it to Guam. It boggles my mind, and part of it is, as you guys, I think, know, when I was coming up, uh, the first couple of years that I was in, the, the internet was scarce. Uh, there were a handful of people that uh, had access to the internet regularly, and then, you know, you kind of had the explosion with AOL chat rooms, and people started having it on their home computers, and you were no longer, like, paying by the minute for access. I, rem I remember in the very early days, as soon as we had a modem, there was like a local BBS in my uh, neighborhood that you could get on. Um, but Internet Access, our local company, uh, was charging by the minute. <laughs> it was like a 900 number, right? Like I, yep. I, I could spend this money getting tips from Mean Gene or I could get on uh, the <laughs> Silver Hammer BBS in West Lawn, Pennsylvania. <laughs> to where we are now, the ubiquity of the Internet, uh, that somebody that they wanted to could just lift up their phone and live stream via Periscope an entire Chikara event out to the world. It's completely changed. And uh, when, when I was coming up, 94, 95, 96, 97 is really when I feel like independent wrestling and the internet started getting together in any kind of significant way. We couldn't have then even begun to predict the way it would change everything. So, you know, I kind of came in right before the internet became a thing. Here's the old method of doing independent wrestling, right? This is how you marketed it. If somebody didn't get out with, uh, can you picture in your mind with those old carnival style posters that are pink on the top, yellow in the middle, and blue on the bottom look like? Oh yeah, without a doubt. Right. right. This this is the this is the bread and butter of independent wrestling in the nineties. Oh it? yeah, yes it is. <laughs> uh, the company that did them, incidentally, still in business, Tribune Showprint. If you want to get some made up, go to town. But. Uh, if you didn't get your team out hard enough to hit phone poles with those carnival posters, nobody came to your show because no one knew about it. Uh, that's all there was. And to think of where I'm at now, right, that was, you know, May of 1994 is when I had my, my first match. Here I am, what is it, tw about 22 years later. To see the arc of it and the transformation of it, it does. It never ceases to amaze me. Um, you guys may know I, I worked for uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated for a period of 10 years. Right, yes. Yep. Uh, I, I did column work for them, I did feature work for them, etc. That arc from uh, when I was there from 1998 to just about 2008, I got to see how uh, wrestling magazines just became completely obsolete. They became completely irrelevant. Um, when did you guys first start paying attention to independent wrestling? Can you pick that out in your head? Oh, uh, 96, without a doubt. 96, and what about you? Probably uh, around that time, definitely um, mid-90s. Mm -hmm. 
So you can recall the kind of fervor that, for example, surrounded the PWI 500. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. This was considered like it was a statement to the industry. It was, an it was meant to be an authoritative listing to – I fast forward to where I was, uh, you know, right around the time when I uh, decided to give my notice to London Capital Publishing, where that had become utterly irrelevant, if not the punchline to a joke. Um, and coming up, those first couple of years that I was in, one of my only real goals in wrestling was to see my name in a wrestling magazine. That was all that mattered. If my name was in print in one of the after magazines, I felt like I had made it. To say that now, like I do seminars, right? And I've got, I've got right, right now the Wrestle Factory is overflowing with students that I get to yammer on endlessly to about back in my day when we were the independents. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> if I said that to any of those guys now, like, one of my loftiest goals in wrestling was to see my name in a wrestling magazine. That's, like, laughable to them. Um, you know, it's everything's been completely revolutionized by the Internet. Definitely true. And it's funny because we talked to uh, Tom Carter, and he was saying, it was, uh, I believe it was 1998, that he got ranked number 50, and then he started wearing that T-shirt that he was ranked in PWI number 50, <laughs> and that he wasn't even on TV, and he was ranked number 50. Right. Yeah, he was the highest-ranked independent wrestler at that time. No, no one had ever crossed that mark. I don't think prior to that anyone had even made it into the top 100 unless you were a television performer. Absolutely crazy, you know, how, what focus used to be put on that, which it's kind of funny looking back now because it's like, eh, who cares? Like one year The Miz might have been in the top five. So you're like, eh, you know, now you just kind of sit back and laugh at it. But then it was very, very important to us to see who's on this list. Who is this guy? You know, we got to seek him out. We got to find Mike Quackenbush, and we got to, you know, watch him uh, on the uh, New Jersey Independence. Yeah, it was, it was extremely political. Uh, I even when I was a freelancer there, I didn't spend a lot of time in the physical office. I worked from home, but uh, on the few occasions that I would go into the office, it never ceased to amaze me. Uh, Stu Sachs, the uh, publisher, uh, he may have become publisher later. He might have been editor in chief at the time. I'm not sure. To see wrestlers writing death threats to this guy about where he's being. You know, ranking the PWI 500, right? We are laughing about it right now, right? It's laughable. We are literally laughing at this idea right now. But that's how contentious it was. And it's just utterly irrelevant. And I got to really see that firsthand. You know, you're watching the, the magazines change format and the page counts going down and the advertising rates going up. You see this across all, all types of periodicals. You see it in your local hometown newspaper, too, right? Sizes are shrinking. Ad rates are going up. It's absurd. Print media is going away. And I really felt like during the time that I was there, it went from being, I felt like maybe I'm in the best seat of any independent wrestler working today because I've got a freelance writing job with the magazines to where I was at the time when I handed in my resignation. But uh, this job is such a pain in the rear end. And you know, the freelance rate, uh, if you do magazine work, as you know, is not very glamorous. Nine and a half cents a word is not paying the bills. Uh, this, is, this is a chore. I, I can't even make an hour a day to work on this. It's not even worth my time. From where I started to where I ended up, it's a remarkable arc. That is crazy. And then, obviously, besides being the, the writer, I mean, you do so many things in the wrestling business. But if I could wind a little bit back to, you know, because we kind of touched on a little bit about how you got in uh, training with Ace and, and Reckless Youth. But how did you and Tom Carter come up with Chikara itself? Uh well, we had, uh, it, it's strange to think about this now, but um, we, we started talking about it in the summer of 2000, and this precedes the invention of NWA TNA. 
we were talking about it, and uh, Tom and I were involved, as well as Don Montoya, the third guy, the third one of our traveling mates. And uh, they had they had kind of trained elsewhere. Tom had trained at the Monster Factory. I think uh, Montoya did as well. Tom also spent some time training under Al Snow. I had no, I I didn't actually train under Reckles. Um, the first place that I got anything that was like credible training was uh, out in Pittsburgh. It was like a pay by the class kind of thing. Uh, there was this kind of like low level con man who would uh, basically tell guys, "I was the Blue Blazer, and you should pay me to train <laughs> this guy that this guy that no one has ever ever heard of." Uh, would 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 tell guys that like, "Oh yeah, you know." Uh, sometimes on TV, Owen Hart would do it, but most of the time I was the blue blazer. That was his rap, and he would take 50 bucks a night from kids to teach him a couple things in the ring. Um, so I, I, I had learned, and I, you can't see this, but I'm making air quotes around the word learned some things from this guy. <laughs> and then it really wasn't until Ace and Devin kind of took me under their wing and, and, and basically told me, like, one, you, you got to know to shut up, right? Just you open your ears and you open your eyes and you take it all in and then you shut your mouth. We never want to hear your stupid remarks. We never want to hear your pig-headed teenage arrogance. Just be quiet. Don't piss anybody off. We will do our very best to help you. Let's go. Uh, and they were very quick oftentimes to give me the lessons in humility that I really needed because at that age, you know, a lot of guys, that's roughly when they break into wrestling, right? Fresh out of high school, 17, 18, 19 years old. Um, you, we can all kind of look back on that now and realize, like, I was in no position to behave like a professional when I was that age. Uh, you know, I was barely figuring out who I was as a person. This is probably a terrible time to be putting that all on stage uh, in the court of public opinion for everybody to witness while I'm wearing my tidy whities and some body glitter. Terrible, <laughs> terrible, terrible idea. And yet we watch guys do it all the time. Uh, so. You know, we traveled up and down and eventually became traveling mates with Reckless and Montoya, which I'm sure, you, I'm sure you know. And we decided after Tom came back from his WWF developmental deal, and uh, he spent, I don't know, maybe a little over a year in Memphis uh, under Terry Golden's Memphis Championship Wrestling. This is when Regal and Terry Taylor and those guys were kind of heading that stuff up down there. And uh, I feel like when Tom came back, they had really beaten a lot of his passion for the craft out of him. I think it's a recurring struggle for everyone, myself included. I feel like I go through this at least once a year where I feel utterly burned out by what we do. And you must be able to find the joy in the craft again. Sometimes you go back and you revisit past points of inspiration. You must discover something new about the craft that challenges you. But I think you will burn yourself out if you do not constantly rediscover a source of joy in the craft. And in my personal opinion, when Tom came back from his experience in the WWF's developmental system in Memphis, they had just utterly beaten the passion out of him. He really came back a changed man. Uh, we thought about the fact that we did a lot of complaining. As uh, You put any group of guys in a car together for hours and hours on the weekend, they're going to find stuff to complain about. Uh, that is the nature of professional wrestling. The best-paid, best-treated guys in the world will still find something to complain about if you put them in a car together long enough. Uh, the smell of protein powder and farts will bring that out. <laughs> and we kind of just decided, if all we do is moan about how awful things are, shouldn't we shut up about it and do something? And we decided, yes, we're going to change things. And we're going to do it by training people uh, you know, in a certain kind of way. We want a more cosmopolitan style that involves all these international things. And we originally wanted to call it Impact Wrestling. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh <So> boy. <laughs> for quite a while, I'd say for the first four or five months that we were talking about doing it, we wanted to call it Impact Wrestling. Uh, 
And then when the time came that we were each going to put up a fairly small sum of money, I mean, it was significant to us at the time in our 20s, but um, in reality, a fairly small sum of money, we were all going to put up an equal amount to invest and launch the training facility. At that point, Montoya bowed out. Um, it, it, it just didn't suit with where he was uh, personally at that time. And so then it became Tom and I, by just the two of us. And when Montoya bowed out, we thought, we're not going to keep this name. Like That was sort of the three of us. It needs to be something else. And I kind of went through and came up with words that I liked that um, you didn't immediately know it was wrestling. And that's where Chikara came from. So we had kind of like a list of words. And uh, I, I didn't want pro wrestling to be part of the name. I, I just wanted it to be this you know, thing by itself. In the same way that you could imagine, um, the first time you heard Pokemon, did you know what Pokemon was? No idea. Right? Like Bakugan, Yu-Gi-Oh! Any of these things, right? We, we have no idea what those things are until we find out a little bit more. And, and that was very much kind of the thought process behind choosing the name Chikara, and it all very quickly came together then. Um, Tom, who's got a, a great business mind, uh, you know, he's an extremely skillful accountant and just brings a lot of skill set to the table that I, I've never had. That was very much uh, you know, the side of it that I needed. I depended on Tom to bring. He went about going ahead and getting us set up as a corporation and all that kind of uninteresting business that led to the launch of Chikara Wrestle Factory. But then, about eight months in, August of 2002, for a number of reasons, Tom decided uh, to depart the business. I think it was in part due to the fact that uh, his wife's business was really taking off and that was demanding more time of them. And I think as well, he was really exhausted by the legal battles that we had uh, in the city of Allentown. We... we um, ran afoul of their zoning board and the company coffers were utterly drained by having to retain attorneys to defend us in court. Um, it was clear on the day that Tom decided to leave the company. We had less than 14 days of operating expense in the bank account. Um, if any bill had come in at that time, we would have been out of business. We, we, we had no money. And I remember on that day, he, uh, on the day that uh, you know, he departed from the business, he said, uh, the best advice I could give you is fold this within 30 days. Hmm. Uh, so I felt like, you know, the guy that really understands the business end of this is walking away. And these are his parting words to me. He handed me this like black binder thing that fits inside this weird box that was like all the incorporation documents and everything else. And as I'm watching him drive away from 1313 Linden Street, I'm like, the last words that the guy who was meant to do the business end of it, like, man, I love doing the idea side of it, story, character, creative stuff. That's that's my passion. And Tom was really the numbers and the business guy. And in parting, what he's told me is, I've got 30 days before the guillotine drops on our throats here. And where do we go from here? And I walked back inside. It was the day uh, Eddie Kingston, his partner Jack Marciano, and Jigsaw, those three guys began training with us that day. That was their one day with Tom. And I went back inside and said to him, we, we have a choice to make at this moment. Either uh, we're going to turn the lights off for the last time today, or we're going to figure out some way to make this work. And I'm telling you right now, I don't know how. Tom was a superior trainer to me. Um, he brought a far greater and real business acumen to the table, and I have none of those talents. And uh, if I've got to learn it, I guess I'm going to learn it. But I'm telling you right now, it's entirely possible we're going to fail. And we had a real kind of like come together unifying moment. Everyone that was in that room with me at that moment, um, I, 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 I'm sure they would describe it to you with remarkable accuracy. It was a defining moment in the early days of Chikara. Hmm. 
That is crazy to see you almost folding to where you are today, where you're having the annuals um, King of the Trios tournament, which is just amazing. And the, the roster of guys that you get in every year just, you know, always, you know, ceases to amaze me because it's just like, oh, my God, this guy's in the King of Trios, this guy. And then even Pro Wrestling Day, uh, the National Pro Wrestling Day. So can you believe you've gone from that to where you are today? Well, I mean, here I am. So I guess the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> Against all odds, we're still standing. Yes. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by so many talented, uh, multi-talented people that believe the same things that I believe about the craft. And without them, it would have. It would have. I can go back and I can tell you all these times where we should have just crumbled. It should have fallen apart. The group should have dissolved. We should have declared bankruptcy. The accountants told us how many years in a row you should you should absolutely you should have given this up years ago. This is madness. Um, I can think of more of those than I can count, and yet here we still are. And I'm still surrounded by so many of those same guys that were in the room with me uh, when I, at that moment I just described to you. Uh, you know when when Tom uh, resigned from the organization. Uh, those guys still work with me week in and week out. There's still Hollow Wicked, and there's still Icarus, and there's still Bryce Remsburg, and there's still uh, Ultramantis, even even though he's retired, and there's still Eddie Kingston, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a, a real relentless dedication to a certain cause. And to, to kind of draw that into clarity, because I feel like we spent a lot of years where we didn't know what it was. We were kind of bonded together because we felt like we are the island of misfit toys. We are We're kind of together almost by default. These were guys, some of the earliest guys that came to me were guys that had been kicked out of other wrestling schools. They'd been expelled. Um, we, were the, we really were the bad news bears in the early days. We were the guys that had, we did not have a chance. We just didn't have a shot <laughs> against all odds. And for many years, we didn't know what it was about. And I think this is what it's about, very, very plainly, is that people come to pro wrestling wanting to leave the experience with some kind of joy that that is the real net yield of a pro wrestling experience it gives you some joy it, you, you undergo this escapist experience and at the end you are given some measure of joy from going on the, on the ride with us and how do we best serve that to the customers i think i came up you know as you well know in, in an era where uh, some of the inside terminology of wrestling was still very protected. It had not yet all been exposed on the internet. That uh, terms like mark and face and heel and those kinds of things, they were unknown to the fan base by and large. You had, you had to be somewhat inside to know those terms. I, I feel like some of them I didn't even know till I read them on the internet. Uh, <laughs> in my independent travels, I never once heard the expression jobber until I read it like... Uh, on a CompuServe page, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that term, I've never heard that to this day. I've never heard that used in a locker room. Um, so I, th I, th I think about where we were at then, where we're at now, what does it mean to be really uh, as plain about what we're making with the audience as we can and to understand our responsibility to them because to regard them with the element of contempt that allows us to say, oh, you know, these dumb marks are here and we're going to fleece them for all their money and then we're going to move on to the next town and that's what we do. Um, that's obsolete. It's a little bit revolting. We need, we need to be light years past that in 2016. And the reality is that pro wrestling is a performance art and the people that come and buy the tickets, they are our patrons. 
they allow us to keep doing this. They allow us to keep making it. And we're beholden to them to give them the experience, which in my my understanding after having done this for 22 years is this, whether they know it or not, they are coming to experience some amount of joy and it's incumbent on us to deliver it to them or we haven't done right by the customers. Absolutely well said. And if I can go back to what you kind of said about, you know, the Wrestle Factory and how Eddie Kingston was there and Jigsaw and some of those early students, but I can't help but uh, remember myself doing a, a seminar with you over the summer and having an absolutely wonderful experience there and loving the Wrestle Factory. And then you kind of reminded everybody when they were there, your most popular and famous student is one of the best wrestlers in the world right now, Cesaro, a.k.a. Claudio Casanoli. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I feel really fortunate that more than any other human being, I got to spend more training hours in the ring with Cesaro than anyone else. Um, you know, he trained in Switzerland a bit before he decided that he was going to relocate from Switzerland to Pennsylvania to train with us at the Wrestle Factory. And um, believe me, I'm more than happy to take whatever credit people want to give me for that. But in, <laughs> in all honesty, um, that man is so dedicated and so committed to what he does, and so very, very talented, that it almost doesn't matter who trained him. He would have been a superstar regardless. He is undeniable. Um, he, to be in the ring with him, I think you would understand it in 30 seconds. He's almost a force of nature. I have such respect and admiration for Claudio, and while I'm really glad that I got to play some role in uh, a story that will one day no doubt be legendary, uh, my participation in some ways could almost be viewed as incidental because his superstardom, in my opinion, was inevitable. Absolutely. And then you also had guys, not really, I wouldn't say that you trained them, but you know they were there with you in the Wrestle Factory. A guy like Chris Hero, who's kind of just an underrated, uh, you know, I'd say legend or, or, you know, amongst the, uh, the smart fans for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, that was right around the same time that Claudio had relocated. Uh, the very earliest tours of Europe that I was able to get on were really because of Chris opening that door for me. Uh, I think he cracked it open for American independent wrestlers. And when things flowed that way, part of the result was there was a flow back from Europe. And there was probably no more significant net gain of that than Claudio Castagnoli moving to the U.S. from Europe. Um, and uh, again, I, I want to say this too, uh, referencing as well that very glowing introduction that you gave me. Um, <laughs> I, I generally don't shy away from anyone wanting to heap praise, but I do think it's, it's really almost impossible for someone such as myself to attain anything that's like legendary status for this reason. Um, while I do feel at times that I am very respectfully revered by people that are in the know and really understand the craft uh, and all of its facets, not unlike the two of you, um, to the world at large, uh, what I've done and what I've made and uh, the influence that I've had on things, I think, is kind of utterly irrelevant. And I'll contrast, uh, I, I'm saying that a bit with, with humility, um, but I, I, I want to back it up with this. Uh, there's a series that you could watch on the uh, WWE Network. It's called Breaking Ground. Have you guys heard of this? Oh, yeah. Have you, have you seen it? Have you watched yeah. any? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very good. Yep. So for a number of years, maybe four or five years, uh, helping train at the Wrestle Factory was Sarah Del Rey. And about uh, four years ago, I guess it was, yeah, about 2011, 2012, 
she departed to go to work for the WWE, and she works in their performance center. She's the head coach of the Divas. She's the assistant head coach under Matt Bloom down there at the performance center. When I see what they're doing down there and what Sarah's brought to the table, I can't help but smile because I see tomorrow's superstars being trained with a curriculum that I helped develop. That's the Wrestle Factory curriculum that I see on the screen when I watch that. And I can't help but feel a little bit proud that I got to play any kind of role in that. That contribution ultimately may be very insignificant, and yet I do find a degree of pride in that. And then I want to contrast that against this. Uh, you may recall, uh, maybe three years ago, I feel like it was shortly before they started doing, uh, before NXT really got presented as its own independent brand. Do you remember the WWE had conducted uh, a survey of its audience, specifically those people, fans, who identified themselves as being an ardent pro wrestling fan? Do you remember this study? Yes, I do. Yep. Uh, less than 2% of people who could say, I am an ardent pro wrestling fan. I have a voracious appetite for this art form. I love the trivia and the minutia of it. Less than 2% of those people could name any wrestling organization other than the WWE. <laughs> so to 98% or more maybe of people out there that think of themselves as ardent professional wrestling fans, the entirety of my wrestling career my contributions, and everything else I've ever done, to them, it doesn't even exist. Unbelievable. Hmm. That's pretty crazy to think about it, especially when, uh, you know, you can get on the internet, like I did, and uh, buy a DVD or, or, or maybe look on YouTube, and you watch you versus Brian Danielson. You know, there's an extensive feud you guys had, and you can almost use that as like a training manual within itself of how to you know, pro wrestling is done, wrestling holds, wrestling maneuvers. So, you know, maybe I'm in the minority there, but uh, to me, I think that uh, you definitely gave a lot to the wrestling business, whether you know it or not. Well, I hope so. I appreciate that. And I hope that, uh, I, and I've really struggled with this in the three years since uh, I've, I've had to give up in-ring competition. Um, my injuries have really just gotten the better of me. Um, I, I must believe that my best work is still to come. And if, if I don't believe that anymore, I should probably punch out. Um, I, I, my best work must remain ahead of me. And if, if what the shape of that work is, is training tomorrow's stars, if it's helping to better define what it is that we're really doing, if it's helping to get the world at large to better understand what is so magical about professional wrestling, um, then that's where my focus needs to be. And, um, and, and two, I'm sure you can probably hear it just kind of echoed in my words, especially if um, you, you've gone back and read or seen earlier interviews that I gave decades ago. Uh, I'm very much at a different place in my wrestling career than probably the first time that you guys ever saw me in the ring or read about me in a magazine or however it is that you first heard about me. Uh, I'm just in a very, very different place about it. And I feel good. I feel good about where I'm at. I, I don't. I don't feel good necessarily when I wake up and I hear all the weird clicks coming out of my body every time I try to let, sit up in bed and go to the shower. Uh, I feel kind of strange about that. But um, I'm well aware of what the price that needs to be paid to chase that dream is. I don't regret that at all. And I do feel really good about where I'm at and, and, and where things go from here. Because in those early days, like I said, a lot of times it just felt like, I don't really know what we're doing. 
I don't know how we're paying the bills this month. I don't know how we're getting from point A to point B. And we'll just trip, fall, and fail our way there until somebody stops us. <laughs> well said. I, I like that. And I'll wind it down a bit here because, I, you know, I know uh, you're a little pressed on time today. But, you know, you've done so much in the business. You're basically an innovator of offense, I, I would consider you. You used to be called the, you know, the master of a thousand holds. Almost kind of a playoff Dean Malenko, but you may have a few more holds than him that I've seen. But do you have a favorite match or maybe a couple of favorite matches you had in your career? Because you've wrestled so many guys, like beating Tiger Mask for the NWA junior title or wrestling Jushin Thunder Liger. I mean, we mentioned Brian Danielson, Reckless Youth, all these awesome guys. Do you have a favorite match or matches that you've had? Um, there is there's one that I like for this reason. Uh, at the Ted Petty Invitational... 2006, I think it is. Uh, I had a chance to wrestle Claudio. Uh, he's, he's wearing long red tights with a Swiss cross and white on them. I'm wearing white vinyl pants that have red and blue lightning bolts on them. And what I liked about that, and this is at a time when Claudio and I were probably in the ring two or three nights a week training relentlessly. Um, we were each other's most frequent training partner, and I felt like we had cultivated a certain chemistry together. Uh, what I like about that was this match is composed entirely of things where we kind of felt like this is an experiment and one of two things is going to happen. We're going to go out there and present to these people something that is absolutely awful. It's going to be a steaming pile in the middle of the ring because we really don't, we're not even 100% confident in our abilities to do some of these things. But, man this comes off, it's going to be unlike anything anybody has ever seen. And through luck or maybe some skill or just the magic that is Claudio Castagnoli, we went out there. It's only about nine and a half minutes long. And uh, we had a match, I think, unlike anything else that had been done up until that point in professional wrestling. Uh, you could pick it apart. You could nitpick probably any match you've ever had apart if you really wanted to. But if you look at it through that lens, and every once and again I have cause to go back and rewatch it, I think the whole thing is on YouTube somewhere. I'm reminded of that, of what that meant to finally accept that, that we're going out there, we're not going to play it safe, we might fail, and with that risk we succeeded in a, in a way larger way than we ever had imagined. You could probably find matches of mine that are closer to being a technical masterpiece than that. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever had a match that I felt was flawless. Uh, there are some tags, trios, Atomicos matches where I have more paints in my palette so I can create, you know, more shades and colors because of all the different players that you have to work with that creatively might be more stimulating. But if if I wanted you to sit down and watch something or, you know, like if, I don't know, one of my cousins was like, you know, I've never seen you wrestle. Do you have something I could watch? I'd send him that nine-minute match. And I'd say, check this out. I'm kind of proud of it. And I still am to this day all these years later. And it's funny you kind of mentioned what you were, you know, you knew exactly what you were wearing, too, because you were kind of known for a while, and we joked around with uh, Tom Carter as well, you know, the black t-shirt squad. You guys always had on your black t-shirts, you and uh, mm -hmm. him and uh, Don Montoya. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, all throughout. I mean, some version of it. Even later when I started having my ring costumes made in Mexico, um, you know, it, it, the shape of that top that they call a butarga mimics the look of a t-shirt right it has like the mm -hmm. sleeve cut and a little bit of a collar it even looks uh, even though it's you know like this weird lycra top thing that i'm wearing um 
it's kind of like I don't know if you've ever seen one of those things. It's actually like a, an adult onesie, <laughs> is what it is. Uh, it, 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 so that it can't pop out. You know, it, it um, snaps together in, in the groin. Uh, but it looked like a T-shirt, uh, and I, I kind of love that. You know, I'd sent off a couple of videos to this guy uh, from Mexicali, Mexico, and I said, I, I need something flashy. I need something new. I want to totally reinvent my look and what came back was a whole lot like what I already was wearing. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's made to look like a black t-shirt, like I've been wearing for the last 10 years. Um, so. <laughs> That's great. Now, you know, we talked about Claudio, obviously, you played a big role in his career, you know, whether you, you want to go as far with it as some people have gone, but do you have any other favorite opponents? Because I know the series of matches you have with Brian Danielson were amazing. Like I mentioned, uh, Jushin Thunder Liger. I know Jerry Lynn was a cool match. He had an ROH. But do you have a favorite opponent that kind of sticks out to you? Um, certainly Claudio. Um, I think in the ring, I had so much fun wrestling Eddie Guerrero in uh, maybe it was like February or March of 2002. It was right after Chicago Wrestle Factory opened. This was up in, I want to say, Lynn, Massachusetts. Company might have been called WWA. They somehow messed it up and somehow did not videotape it. The photographs made it into Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I made certain of that. But uh, the video of it, I don't think exists. I never saw footage of it. And that was the first time uh, I really understood the magnitude of what was being offered to me. Guerrero was gone from the WWE at the time. And uh, I, re I remember what joy it was sharing the ring with him. And that was just, that was just once. I, I only ever wrestled Eddie Guerrero that one time. Uh, in terms of recurring opponents, though, like people that I had the chance to wrestle time and time again, uh, I always enjoy wrestling my own trainees. Uh, I like to watch them evolve. I like to test them in the ring. Um, it's, it's, it's really rewarding when they kind of step up a bit and you get to watch them doing that. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, probably overlooking tons and tons, but guys whose names will just come up over and over again. It was always such a joy to be in the ring with A. Starling. It was always a joy to be in the ring with Reckless Youth or Don Montoya. Um, especially Tom and Don. Uh, a lot of times, especially doing all the miles that we did, not only were we we would often go out there with the attitude of, we want to steal the show. Uh, we're going to put on the very best match possible. And then the undercurrent of what we were doing as well was, can we make each other crack up and laugh in the ring? And uh, it's, it's hard not to look back on that with a, with a real fondness. Um, I've, I've been really, really fortunate to work with so many super talented people over the years. Is there a favorite part of wrestling that you have? I mean, wrestling means so much to you. But did you enjoy training, promoting, wrestling, which, or maybe even writing about it? Is there something mm -hmm. that like sticks out where you're like, oh, I love doing this the most? There's, I think what springs to mind are all the things I dislike the most. Like, uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not the question you asked, is it? Um, the thing I, uh, I, I... Certainly, I always loved performing, and um, I, I, I think I, I love being able to experiment, to take something that I feel like this has never been put on stage before, it's never been done before, we've never taken an audience on this ride before, and let's see if we can't do it. Let's really do our very best to, to see if it, can't, if it can't work. Those things that excite my imagination, that sometimes, you know, they stimulate my brain enough, like I'm having a hard time falling asleep at night because I'm so excited by this idea and I just want to get up and work on it and start figuring out the details. Um, 
sometimes they're the most out of the boxy type things. But that's that's also why I would wager to say when it comes to that out of the box type stuff, um, you, you tend to see Chikara doing it first. Definitely. Now, one thing with Chikara that's been obviously we kind of mentioned it before, it's been so popular and, and so well known, and that's the King of the Trios tournament. What is the actual background of that? Is that basically just like an homage to Lucha Libre? Uh, somewhat. It was kind of an extrapolation of our bloated tag team tournament, the Tag World Grand Prix. We did maybe three tag worlds, 03, 2005, 2006. And then we crowned our first uh, champs, the Campeones de Parejas, the tag team champions. And then the tag tournament kind of outlived its usefulness at that moment. And we thought we can't go smaller. That's anticlimactic. And we have a singles tournament every year anyway. We have our Young Lions Cup for the rookies. So we really just needed to go bigger with it. It needed to become bigger. And six-man tags have always excited my imagination. And so King of Trios just seemed like the next natural evolution of that. And I, uh, I, I don't know that I had ever thought, like, this is going to become the annual watershed-like event. It just evolved into that organically. And we've been able, I think part of the appeal of it, too, is that mo most years we're usually able to coax somebody to come out of the shadows that you haven't seen in a while. Like, I never, I never thought, I mean, I literally heard people say it. I never thought I would see Sean Waltman as the one, two, three kid again. Like, <laughs> hearing those kinds of things, um, I think, speaks a little bit to what that magical appeal of King of Trios is. Oh, without a doubt. And of course, we've uh, definitely talked about the King of Trios on our show, most recently with Ken Doan, who was in absolute... I guess you could call it, you know, a pig and you know what, that he was able to reunite with his members of the Spirit Squad, some of which had left the professional wrestling business as a whole. And I think as a fan, that is something you can definitely appreciate, that you get to relive some of these past, you know, quote, gimmicks, or like you said, Sean Waltman is the one, two, three kid, even uh, one of our guys, uh, just incredible playing Aldo Montoya. I mean, you never think you're going to see something like that again, but you guys are able to bring that back to life. Yeah, and I think it speaks a little bit to maybe the approach and, once again, the idea that some of these things that were relevant when I was coming up now are completely irrelevant. This is the best indicator of this. When the first few times I was ever in an independent wrestling locker room, it was made clear by the senior people, look, if there's like a, a, a big-name guy that you know from television that's in the locker room, you don't go over and bother him, you're not going to ask him for photo you're not going to ask him some goofy fan like question you shut your mouth you stay away from them you put your head down when you walk past you treat them with nothing but respect and you don't give them a minute's irritation and if you do anything like that you're just going to become an outcast you never show your fan side once you're in but i believe it can be very very dangerous to lose touch with your inner fanboy. and i can tell you firsthand when i'm the one making the calls trying to convince some of these people, you know, like, like you mentioned, one, one of the members of the Spirit Squad was completely out of professional wrestling. You must be able to access your inner fanboy, and then you must be able to speak to theirs and to let them know, you know what, this thing that you did, it really did resonate with people. There are people that have a great fondness for what you did, and there were people that were affected by what you did. And for one day or for one weekend, I think it would be great if we could revisit it. For you, for the people that were impacted by what you did, and I know maybe it seems goofy to you or maybe you haven't thought about it in years. Maybe you're not even in wrestling anymore. But it would mean a lot to a lot of people if you'd be willing to do it. And I think we might also have a bit of fun.
What do you say? And you'd be amazed when you can take that approach and you can be sincere about it. I, I never, I will never go after somebody that I personally don't have some admiration, fandom, or respect for. I won't waste my time. When you can take that sincere approach to it, you will speak, I think, directly to a part of us that we have been taught for years and years and years that you never speak of. You never let your inner fanboy shine through. And um, I believe just the opposite. I think, I think you can never lose sight of your inner fanboy or you will forget part of the magic of what we make. Yeah, without a doubt, absolutely well said. And of course, when you talk about fun, that's great that we have the director of fun for Chikara with us. And of course, we want to get into the plugs, and that is this coming Saturday, January 30th, there's a doubleheader at the Wrestle Factory in Philadelphia. And then of course, on Saturday, February 6th, something that I think we all look forward to every year, and that's National Pro Wrestling Day. And of course, there's going to be a free event that you guys are, are all behind and your May tour, uh, your May UK tour coming up, which you can get all the information on ChikaraPro.com. And of course, all the places to follow you, like on Twitter, at ChikaraPro, and of course, your own Mike Quackenbush, at Mike Quackenbush on Twitter. But just really quickly before we wrap it up about the National Pro Wrestling Day, you know, what's the thought behind that? Because we've talked about the King of Trios being such a cool and unique event, but National Pro Wrestling Day just is so welcoming to fans, and it's, it seems like it's something that carries a lot of weight when you say it like that, because pro wrestling, not only is it a national pastime, but it's also a worldwide loved pastime. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's evolved over the years, uh, the National Pro Wrestling Day idea. It's, it's not at all what it once was, and, and for, for better, for better reasons. Um, you know, every year we couple together with a, a charitable organization. This year we're working with the Polaris Project. They combat human trafficking here in the United States as well as abroad. And um, we're looking to raise funds. That's why we give it away to the public for free. Uh, just having seen the revised card today, I think we're up over 15 matches. It's going to be a massive day-long affair. We're, we're looking to do two intermissions now to try and mitigate the running time of the card. Um, so that the audience just doesn't totally like bug out from too much wrestling. But uh, we're doing it, one, of course, to celebrate the sport that we all love, and two, in the name of a good cause. Uh, every year, like in years past, when we work with the SAVA Foundation or the Against Malaria Foundation, we're very, very careful about being responsible advocates for these charities. We do our research. We want to make sure that these organizations that we back, the money that gets donated really goes to the people that need it. It's not that 80% of it goes to their infrastructure and lining some fat cat's wallet. No, the money actually goes where it needs to go. And we're trying to raise money to provide shelter, food, and clothing for survivors of human trafficking here in the United States. That's the real goal, to show the world the positive power of professional wrestling. I feel like on a daily basis, I'm confronted with the stigma that pro wrestling has. Right? You call up venues and tell them you put on a pro wrestling event. They're like, oh, pro wrestling, we don't want any of that around here. You can imagine being lifelong fans like the two of you are, what that stigma is like, right? You mentioned it to a coworker, a family member that doesn't get it, and the way they turn up their nose at professional wrestling. And if even just one person and one day at a time, we can show people the positive power of professional wrestling, then we are doing the right kind of stuff. That's at the heart of National Pro Wrestling Day. That's awesome, of course, yeah. And if you, uh, you're a pro wrestling fan like John and I are, you just go out and uh, put your heads together and you build a, a podcasting empire. But please also tell the fans and the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling just where they can find anything and everything from Mike Quackenbush. 
Well, following me on Twitter, you'll see me mentioning the other podcasts that I do. I'm the co-host of the Grizzly Bear Egg Cafe, which is a whole lot of like superhero and nerd culture news where you'll hear me gush endlessly about whatever the last Marvel movie that I saw is with my best friend, Clayton Morris. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I hope that I can see you guys this weekend. The doubleheader at the Wrestle Factory, January 30th, as we kick off season 16. As ever, kids 12 and under are free with a paying adult. These shows are, are very strictly catered to the entire family. Uh, the last thing we would ever want is to um, embarrass or insult the audience with any of the content in our events. And then National Pro Wrestling Day, next Saturday, February 6th in Reading, PA. It is open to the public and totally free. We start at 2 p.m. Mickey James taking on Princess Kimberly in the featured attraction bout. The complete 12th annual Young Lions Cup tournament will take place. Tons of other matches. We're doing one of our free workshops where fans are going to get the chance to get in the ring at the event. All that and a whole lot more. If you want to find out more or how you can help us meet our fundraising goal for the Polaris Project, go right to nationalprowrestlingday.com. And if you happen to be there, come on up and say hello to me. I'll be the guy that looks like me. <laughs> and that's the perfect way to end it. And thank you so much, Mike, for coming on with us. And that's where I cut the interview. But personally.